Please remain standing as you're able. Some of you may know I've been uh, gone for a while. Uh, we went on a trip and spent some time in Germany. And one of the places we stopped was a place called Nuremberg, um, host to the Nuremberg trials after World War II. And, and had you heard this, that Hitler's great, great grandson is now running for prime minister of Israel? Of course you haven't heard it. It would never happen. It would be completely absurd. But there is a Jewish biblical scholar named Jacob Neusner who says to have a Moabite named Ruth who would have a great-great-grandson who would grow up to be the king of Israel is just as ridiculous. How did this strange thing happen? In part, it happened because of a promise made. And a promise kept. So we'll look at that this morning. And as we come before God's word, I'd invite you to join me in what Jesus called the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the story in Ruth starts with a man named Elimelech, who is an Israelite, who marries another Israelite named Naomi. They have two sons, but a famine hits the area of Bethlehem, which is kind of interesting because Bethlehem means house of bread. But in the famine, he makes a very strange decision to take his family and go to Moab. And Moab uh, in their day is like the Nazis or terrorists in our day. They're just complete anathema, complete enemy. But he goes there with his two sons. While they were there, his two sons married two Moabite women. Now, one day Elimelech dies, and then the two sons end up dying, and his widow Naomi is left without child and without a husband. And so she looks at her Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and she says, look, there's no future in hanging with me. I'm going back to Israel. I hear that there is some bread there. I'll see what I can do. But there's no future there for you. I have no one for you to marry, no one to take care of you. So you need to stay here. And and they cry and they weep. And finally, one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, decides that she will stay in Moab. And that's where we pick up the story. Look, Naomi said to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth said to uh, Naomi that um, she would not go back. And she said, do not make me leave you or turn back from you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And where you will die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do this to me, and even worse, if even death should separate me from you. And so when Orpah realized that Ruth was determined to, I mean, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. When we understand some of the background, this is about as bizarre a story as you can get in the Bible. Let me tell you a little bit about the Moabites. From the Israelite perspective, the Moabites are uh, perverse. 
They're wicked. You cannot trust them. They claim that the Moabites came from the union of a man named Lot. Anybody remember Lot? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot lived there? The union of Lot and his daughter. It's disgusting. That's where they came from. And the stories they told about Moabites got worse from there. And in fact, if you want to check this out for yourself, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and see where the Lord says through Moses that Moabites are not going to be let into the congregation of Israel. They're not going to be let into the tabernacle. They're not going to be let into the temple. They're not going to be let into the church. We're going to stop them at the door. And marrying a Moabite is, well, that's way out. And yet, that's exactly what happened These two Israelite men marry Moabite women, and even after they die, these Moabite women pledge to go back to enemy territory. Well, one turns back and decides not to go, but the other one goes. And she makes an amazing commitment that uh, basically says, I will give up my old life for you. I will take on a new life in a strange territory. Well, I will be hated. And... I will stay, not only stay there until you die, I will stay there until I die, and I will be buried there. Now, that's a real big deal. If you're an Israelite, it doesn't matter where you die, it matters where you're buried. Anybody remember Joseph with a coat of many colors? Y'all remember him? And he came from Canaan or Israel, ended up in Egypt, he was second in command of Egypt, but on his deathbed he made his descendants promise one day, he said, when you get out of Egypt... Take my bones with you. Bury me with my people. It's not where you die. It's where you're buried and you're always buried with your people. And here, Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going to be buried with your people. Because now they're my people. She gives up not just her present, her future. And it seems almost her eternal future for her mother-in-law. It is an extremely strange commitment of depth that it's hard for you and 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 it's hard uh, for me to understand as well now i don't know you've probably been to a wedding before where someone will get up and read ruth you know uh where you go i will go where you stay i will stay your people will be my people your god will be my god and it's a beautiful thing to read it, read at a wedding but here's full disclosure what that is is a snippet of an argument between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law the mother-in-law saying no don't go with me Stay here. I can't take care of you. I can't take care of myself. And the daughter-in-law is talking back to the mother-in-law and saying, no, I'm going. It's an amazing, amazing commitment, an amazing promise. I'd like to share a few things I shared with the confirmation class this morning. Because, of course, they were on the verge to make a significant uh, promise in the service at 930. And I want to pass uh, a few of these things on to you. The first thing I have to tell you about Ruth's promise is she makes this promise and there's absolutely nothing to gain by making the promise. She gets nothing. Naomi has no food, no access to food, no way of knowing what she will find when she gets back to, Jer- to Bethlehem. She just doesn't, she doesn't know. There's nothing for Ruth to gain. Not only is she going to go to a place um, where there's no hope and no future, she's probably going to be hated while she's there. Um, and so it's a little bit like, imagine a um, hundred and something years ago, um, you were had, had a, a small but seaworthy ship, and you saw the Titanic. 
after it hit the iceberg and you saw it begin to take on water and you went up to them and you said, here, I'd like to get on. Where you go, I will go. Where you end up, I will end up. I mean, there's no future. Ruth is getting on the Titanic after it's already hit the iceberg. Naomi has nothing. Now, there was a day, I think, when you joined the church and thought you might get some business connections or, uh, or other kinds of support. I, I, I've, I've seen that in the past. There might be, or you'll be held in higher esteem in the community because you did. But I had to tell the confirmands, hey, you joined this church. We've hit the iceberg. The, the church, in the estimation of the culture, continues to go down. Now, I'm not blaming the culture. I mean, the church has got a lot of own to own in this deal. The way we've acted, the way we've ignored the outside world. I'm just saying nobody gives you bonus points for joining a church today. There's not a lot to gain. And neither was there a lot to gain for Ruth. And so with nothing to gain and facing certain opposition, I'm sure they talked about behind her, about her, uh, about her behind her back. They probably did it to her face. You know, there are some scholars who say they probably thought that the reason her two husbands died young was because they had married Moabite women when they weren't supposed to. And God cursed them and the men died. So here comes a woman who carries that curse. Her name is Ruth. Nothing to gain. Opposition to face, but she goes... Anyway, opposition and peer pressure can be a strong thing. You're probably familiar now with the uh, event that took place while I was gone, but I but, but, uh, saw some information about it. A fraternity party, one of the pledges drinks too much, falls down the stairs, bottom of the stair, knocked out. They leave him for 12 hours before calling 911. Now, one of the guys I saw on TV that wasn't charged in connection with this, they asked him, well, why didn't you call 911? And he said, it just, I got the sense they didn't want me to. And the pressure was so great not to do it that I just, I couldn't do it. Pressure is that strong. It's strong for confirmands. It's strong for me, for you. And Ruth was going to run head into it. It's an amazing promise when there's nothing to gain. But she made it anyway. It's further an amazing promise to me as a pastor. I'm not really sure I like this part of the promise. But if you look at it closely, she's not promising because of God. She's promising because of Naomi. I'd like her to say, oh, Naomi, I've learned about your God. Your God is so wonderful. I've heard all about your God. I want to go be with your God. It's not what she says. She says, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people will be my people. Oh, yeah, your God will be my God. She makes this commitment not because of God, but because of her relationship with someone who loves God. And I think sometimes the confirmation class thinks what they're doing on, on this Sunday morning is they're coming and they're making a commitment to God and they're talking about what they believe about God. When in reality, they're making a commitment to the body of Christ, to the family of God. But isn't that really how it works that most of us probably get into this relationship with God because of someone we know or someone we trust? Now, there's a famous guy from the last um, 19th century so I guess now uh, it's almost two centuries ago. His name is Phillips Brooks. If you're not familiar with him, he wrote a, a famous song called O Little Town of Bethlehem. He was so famous in the city of Boston that when he died, they, they had a, a holiday so everyone could go to his funeral. 
Well, one day, he's a very smart man, and so they ask him, well, you know, tell us how you became a Christian. And they expect the answer would be that he would talk about how it, it solved certain questions he had or how he'd work things out, or they would have some sort of philosophical answer. And this is what he said. Oh, how I became a Christian? Why I became a Christian? He said, I believe it was my Aunt Geneva. And he talked about his family. And I thought about how I stand in front of you this morning, and it's probably because my parents and grandparents and my sister. And then probably I'll be back in front of you next Sunday and that'll be due to my family I'm with now and the staff. I mean, there are always people encouraging me and I want to walk where they walk. The studies are 85% of people come to a relationship with God through Christ because of someone they know. So isn't that how it works anyway? You come to love, know, and trust Naomi, and so then you come to love and know and trust Naomi's God. And so when you make a commitment to Christ through the church, it's not just to God, it's to a community. To saying, you're my people now, and I'm going to go with you and be with you. And I think it's a wonderful promise, because let me tell you, there will be times in your faith life when you will not have it all together. There will be times in your faith life when the circumstances will become overwhelming. And it will not be you. It will be the people around you who will help you keep it together. I'm reminded of a Bible study. Another church a long time ago, somebody in the Bible study uh, got cancer. And he confessed to his Bible study group. He said, I don't think I have the faith to face this. And his Bible study group gave him a very interesting answer. They said, you don't have to. We'll have faith for you. And together, they made it. It's amazing, but what Ruth does is she makes a commitment, not because of a direct word from God, but because of another person to whom she's committed. This is something interesting the rabbis say. Remember Abraham? God got up and told Abraham, leave your family, leave your country, get up and go. And Abraham did it, and that was amazing. But they said what Ruth did was even greater because Ruth didn't hear directly from God. And yet she decided to get up and go, and she did it because of love for another person. It's a promise of love. It's a promise of a a relationship with God that started a relationship with with another person. And so anytime you're part of uh, uh, the body of Christ, your commitment is not just to Jesus, but, but to the rest of us who try to walk with you as we all walk with Jesus together. And from my point of view, it's been a pretty good deal because there are times where I just couldn't walk by myself. Then the final thing that I think is really interesting to me and amazing about this promise of Ruth is is the results of the promise are pretty amazing. Let's go back to Naomi. At the start of the story, Naomi is childless, penniless, widow with, with an uncertain future. In fact, I'd say it's pretty certain she has no future. At the end of the story, she has uh, Boaz who now takes care of her, and she has a grandchild, and her family name will live on. Ruth's promise led to a miracle from Naomi, but that's not all. If you go back to the start of the story, it takes place during uh, the book of the time of Judges. And if you remember in the Judges, it's a very iffy time for the people of Israel. Um, If you pardon me, what, what I told the confirmation class is they get their butts kicked routinely by the Philistines and other tribes around them. It's a very iffy existence. But at the end of the story, you move toward Ruth's great, great grandson, 
who will take the 12 tribes and unite them and make them stronger and more secure than they've ever been before. The miracle of Ruth and Naomi is a young boy named David who will become king. But that's not all. When you get in the book of Judges, in fact, take any book in the Old Testament, and you find the same situation. People are enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to death. The world around them is chaos. And yet, by the end of the story, Ruth has a great-great-grandson who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son. Just keep going after a while, and you end up in the genealogies and the gospel, and you end up with Jesus himself. A world lost a world in darkness, and Ruth and Naomi make a promise to each other which yields to the light and gives rise to the light of the world. Promises, even in the face of situations where there's nothing to gain at all, promises really form the basis for miracle. They did for Naomi, they did for King David, and they resulted as well in Jesus And so our promises, they're significant. I thought about the story I read uh, uh, from the early church. There was a guy named Marcus. And Marcus was a pagan. He was an actor, a pretty famous actor. But he became a Christian. And and I know we can't relate at all today. But the early church thought that it was difficult for you to be a famous actor and be a Christian. Don't know why. They just thought it worked like that. And so they said to Marcus, you got to give up acting. To follow Jesus. And Marcus was so naive, he thought he'd made a promise to Jesus. So he said, okay, I'll do it. Well, unfortunately, he lost his income. So his brothers and sisters in the church gave him income and supplied his food and his needs. Until Marcus could think of something to do. Light bulb, he thought of something to do. He'll start an acting school. Church came to him and they said, no, Marcus, that's not going to fly. Acting leads people away from God. We can't do that. So Marcus was like, great. I got nothing. And they supplied him and cared for him until he could find another job. Well, Marcus found another job, but unfortunately got with some people who led him into a life of crime and he ended up in prison. I don't know if you're familiar with prison in the first couple centuries, but it's not unlike some um, uh, prisons in developing countries today. Uh, They don't feed you on tax money. The only way you eat is if somebody brings you food from the outside. And so these Christians gathered together, and even though Marcus had turned against them, they brought him food every day, and they encouraged him. How do we know this story? There's a Roman governor who writes a letter about it, and he blames the Christians for ruining the world. And they use this as an example and said, why didn't they just turn their back on him and let him rot and die? We'd all been better off. But no, he said, these Christians promised to love him, and so they kept doing it. Well, Marcus actually did make it out of prison, rejoined his brothers and sisters in Christ, and his life turned around. That's how it works. Promises in community that are made and kept give rise to miracles. Many years ago, I was uh, not only pastoring but working with youth. And there was a a guy, um, a young man in our youth group who had a younger brother. And the younger brother had some sort of illness that basically made it difficult for him to leave the house. He was just afraid to step outside his door. I think today we would probably call it some sort of social anxiety disorder. But because of it, he basically ended up missing a year of public school. 
And he was a bright young man from a bright family, but he was in real danger. But the friends of his brother in our youth group realized that they wanted to do something about this. And so they got together and they started thinking, what would help your brother? Does he like anything? Would anything get him out of the house? And, and, and the older brother said, well, he likes basketball. Great, they said. So we turned our youth group time at the start of youth group into basketball. And we had like 45 minutes of basketball and about 15, well, no, that's not right. 45 minutes of basketball, about 10 minutes of Jesus. And he came finally and kind of watched it, came to another week and watched it, came a third week, watched it, and then he played, and then he played. And then he played, and he started staying the whole time. He started getting into the group. He started coming out of the house regularly on Sunday afternoon and then on Sunday morning. And then with the help of professionals and the support of a loving community. Got back in high school, sailed through high school, college, graduate school, got a master's in electrical engineering of some kind. And then I found out, though I was many states away, that he got engaged So I called his father and I said, you know, I got the news. That's great. What should I send him? Um, And his father laughed and he said, well, you know, he got his master's in electrical engineering. I said, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. That was great. He said, well, no, he said, David, he makes like five times as much money as you do. He said, don't send him anything. And then he said, you know, he ought to send you a present. I said, no, not me. But those boys who decided more than 10 years ago to rally around him and stay with him. That's the one who gets the present. Because when you make a promise, even in the face of overwhelming odds in community, and you keep it, you never know what's going to happen, but it just might be a miracle.